0: Seconds and counting. There's also this incredible sense of of common vulnerability in space. It's it's what I call a cold, dark, dangerous region. Cold, dark, dangerous regions bring actors together because it's it's just too expensive. It's just too dangerous to operate in these places on your own. Five, four, three, two,
1: one. Liftoff.
2: We have a liftoff.
1: Thirty-two minutes past the hour.
2: Good morning, everyone. I'm your co-host, Miguel.
1: And I'm your co-host, Teresa.
2: And on today's episode, we're taking a look at a different realm of international relations. As some of our audience members may know, NASA recently received confirmation that their rover Perseverance successfully landed on Mars. That confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars. So this is their most sophisticated rover yet, and it's part of their long-term effort in exploring potential for life on Mars. So with this in mind, we thought this would be a perfect time to discuss issues surrounding what human activity in space means for international relations. So on today's episode, we're joined by Professor Michael Byers. Professor Byers is a professor here at UBC and he holds the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law. We discuss a bit about Professor Byers' interests in outer space and the relevance of key developments from SpaceX to satellite constellations, issues involving space debris... And defunct satellites in low Earth orbit, Elon Musk's aspirations to create a human settlement on Mars, and much, much more.
1: Professor Byers, do you want to start by giving us just a quick introduction of yourself and maybe what you do?
0: Well, sure. I'm a an international lawyer by training who uh, ended up teaching in the political science department at UBC because I, I realized through my education that, that international law was largely about international politics and I wanted to understand the intersection between those two things.
1: Wonderful. And I wanted to ask a little bit, I mean, how did you get into sort of this outer space niche or what's, what has your work been with... Um outer space governance.
0: Yeah, I'd had some contact with space issues over the years, but I I didn't become fully engaged with space until December 2015, when my then 15-year-old son, Cameron, persuaded me to go with him to Cape Canaveral, uh, Florida, to watch a a space launch. And and he knew, and I didn't, that this was going to be the first successful landing of the, the first stage of a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket.
1: The company's rocket, the Falcon 9, made a successful vertical landing in Cape Canaveral on Which Monday. Which we
0: observed from just 12 kilometers away. And and so we had the launch, but then even more exciting, we had the re-landing to have this uh, essentially a ballistic missile coming back at us at supersonic speed and then turning on its engines and and landing on four legs. And this thing is 19 stories high, right? It's not small. And, and we observed this along with 15 or 20,000 other people uh, gathered on the banks of the Banana River. Everyone's going absolutely nuts. I'm going absolutely nuts. But a tiny part of my brain is you know, remaining the rational intellectual. And I'm going, this is really significant. I mean, this is a fundamental change in human transportation. Because these guys, these, these women who, who work at SpaceX have just taken 90% off the cost of of launching things to space. Because if you can reuse that first stage over and over again, um, you save enormous amounts of money. You know These things cost about as much and involve as much technology as a Boeing 787 Dreamliner aircraft. And until December 2015, we just threw them away after using them for two minutes. And now we can use them again and again and again. And I'm looking at this going, wow, this is really something. This is this is pretty fundamental. It's it's not equivalent to the invention of the wheel, but it could be equivalent to the invention of the steam engine. And I said, I need to work on oh, this then one day a, a colleague in Earth and Ocean Sciences said, you know, you should meet this astrophysicist named Aaron Boley, who teaches here at UBC, because he's interested in the policy dimensions of space. And it just so happened that Professor Boley and I both taught at the same time on Wednesday afternoons, and so we arranged to to meet for uh, a beer and uh, uh, we sat down and we started talking, and it became a regular thing every Wednesday afternoon because we discovered that no international lawyer or IR scholar had ever spoken to an astrophysicist before because they'd missed all the really important issues, and no astrophysicist had ever spoken to someone like me before because they'd missed all the issues involving uh, the intersection of policy and technology in near Earth space, uh, or at least had missed important dimensions of issues like space debris. And so we actually started co-authoring together and formed a a new institute called the Outer Space Institute, which is now still less than three years old. Um, And we're actually co-authoring a book right now for Cambridge University Press entitled Who Owns Outer Space?
1: I mean, you've kind of just touched on it already, just talking about how, you know, international lawyers, political scientists hadn't really uh, partnered yet with astrophysicists when it comes to looking at this realm and this dimension of international relations. Um, I know personally, when Miguel suggested that we do um, an episode on space, I thought, well, okay, like that's a bit that's a bit niche. I mean, how does that relate to international relations. So I don't know if you can just give us like the broad significance of, you know, what does space have to do with what we're studying?
0: Well, the two wealthiest people um, both own space companies. The, the two richest people on Earth, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, both own space companies. I think that tells you something right there about the centrality of space in 2021. It's a rapidly growing part of the global economy, roughly a third of a trillion dollars per year at the moment and growing quickly. And this is because of new applications, new miniaturized technologies, uh, new software developments, reusable rockets. SpaceX has already put 1,100 broadband communication satellites into low Earth orbit and is planning to to put another 11,000 to make up a, a mega constellation which is available right now you can actually you know buy spacex service uh for internet and in a month or two for voice service as well anywhere in the world right so uh, you know we're talking about not not just in in populated areas but in remote areas on the oceans in the air global service uh and and we're talking about ultimately very very high speed service uh, as well and and then there are the security and military applications so most people don't know this but if there's a natural disaster anywhere in the world, the government agencies responsible for disaster relief in that country receive high-quality satellite imagery within hours for free because of something called the International Disasters Charter. So this is actually an international process for providing free satellite imagery and the partners involved not just nation states, but also private companies. And and I guess what I'm getting at here is that there's a a really important role played by the private sector in the international relations of space, which is interesting also from a a theoretical perspective as we think about sovereignty and changes in elements of, of sovereignty moving forward. And then there's the security and the, the military dimension. So radar from space uh, to see through clouds and at night to produce images of, of structures and, and features on the ground. So you can detect a ship in the Northwest Passage at night through clouds and have such a, a high resolution that you can actually get a, a footprint or fingerprint from the superstructure of the ship and then track it through the Northwest Passage. From space. And this is now ubiquitous and, and commercially available around the world. And there are multiple companies providing this kind of, of service. Or to give you another field of importance you know, with regards to uh, the operation of drones by militaries, these drones are flown by broadband from satellite, right? So the entire uh, drone program of the United States or of Israel or of Turkey is operated from space. And anyone who's working in the, the military sphere or the security sphere or or researching this sphere has to understand that satellites are now part of the decision-making loop, right? They're part of the communications system. And this, in turn, makes satellites potentially attractive targets in the event of hostilities.
2: So this is definitely an important point to keep in mind about the increasing role of space for security. And we'll come back to this in a bit. But I actually want to talk a bit about the conversation around satellite constellations. So earlier you briefly mentioned SpaceX's Starlink and some of these other private companies that are providing near global service so that you can pretty much have access to a broadband internet system across the world. But there are potential problems associated with increasing the traffic of low Earth orbit. So... Do you mind giving our audience a bit of an idea of what the potential problems are of satellite constellations like SpaceX's Starlink?
0: Well, the the biggest problem uh, involves uh, space debris, which results from satellites becoming defunct, uh, reaching the end of their operational lives and turning into essentially bricks in space or collisions between different objects, including between operational satellites. In low-Earth orbit, everything is moving at roughly 17,000 kilometers an hour, and at those intensely high speeds, when they collide, and, and they're not all moving in the same direction, they're moving in crisscrossing orbits. When you get a collision at 35,000 kilometers an hour, you get a, a massive fragmentation event, and so two satellites can turn into a, you know, 100,000 pieces and these pieces are in turn going off in a variety of different crisscrossing orbits and posing a hazard to other operational satellites and risking also collisions with non-operational objects. And in 1978, a, a NASA scientist named Donald Kessler put forward the theory that as you increase the surface area of all of the objects in orbit, you would increase the risk of collisions To the point where you'd actually get a series of run on collisions, that one collision would then give rise to two or more collisions, and you'd get a a runaway situation, a kind of death spiral of space debris.
1: Houston update? Well, we have a full on chain reaction. It's been confirmed that it's the unintentional side effect of the Russians striking one of their own satellites, out shrapnel.
0: And ultimately, could lose safe access to low Earth orbit, which would be devastating to the global economy devastating to world food production because Earth imaging satellites are so important for pest control and moisture monitoring and a variety of, of other agricultural tasks. So the, the consequences would be devastating. And so as you put tens of thousands of new satellites into low Earth orbit, these in turn create a greater risk of collision. And, and getting these companies to, to operate in a responsible way is one of the big challenges in international governance right now. Now, it's a good thing that SpaceX is the first company to do this, partly because it's it's regulated by the U.S. Federal Communications Commission, which is a good regulator. And it's also a pretty good company. It's, it's quite responsive to the concerns that are put to it by the FCC. So the Starlink satellites that are being launched right now, they're all designed to deorbit at the end of their operational lives. They retain thruster fuel so when they're finished uh, fulfilling their service after five or six years they actually come down and burn up in the atmosphere uh spacex is also planning to put automatic collision avoidance systems on these satellites which actually is not as implausible as it sounds because the same company is essentially running tesla and tesla has automatic collision avoidance technology on its automobiles and they're doing other responsible things. For instance, there still is a major concern about the light pollution caused by all these satellites and the detrimental effects on on astronomy. And SpaceX has has experimented with different ways of reducing the glare from these satellites and are now launching them with sun visors that actually make them invisible to the naked eye, at least, although not, not invisible yet to telescopes. And I could go on. So I'm actually pleased that SpaceX is the lead actor here because They're actually implementing some best practices that other satellite companies hopefully will follow or could be encouraged or forced to follow. And this is important because some of these companies won't be regulated by the U.S. Federal Communications Commission. So, for instance, a a Chinese state-owned company has just filed for radio spectrum for a mega constellation of its own. Now, I'm, I'm very hopeful that the Chinese government, which understands the risk from space debris, will force this company to adopt the best practices being pioneered by SpaceX. But what happens in the future if another company decides to set itself up in a flag of convenience state? The Marshall Islands or Liberia or Panama and goes there just like major shipping companies do with regards to ocean-going vessels to benefit from fairly loose regulations and lacks enforcement. And and so this is part of the challenge also, is, is how can we follow the best practice of the FCC and SpaceX and, and try to globalize this in a way that prevents free riding by companies or countries that want to save cost.
1: Right. So it doesn't seem like there is any sort of international framework governing what private actors are doing in space right now then.
0: Well, there is in that national governments are responsible for the activities of private companies that are incorporated within them or or that register their spacecraft within them. And this responsibility unusually is responsibility that extends Mm to to liability. So if a a private company does something that causes an accident in space, the state of incorporation or the state of registry is liable Mm -hmm. under fault-based liability for that. Not the company, the country. If the damage is caused on Earth, so, you know, if there's a, an accident that results in a reentry that causes death on the Earth's surface, the, the country is absolutely liable. It's not false based. Right. It's absolute uh, liability. And, and as, um, as a uh, U.S. government space lawyer uh, said to me a few months ago, he said, this gives us a really power, powerful incentive as governments to, to keep control of these companies because we're on the hook if anything goes wrong. Now, that's maybe not an ideal system, but it is a system. And it's a system that's been in place since the Outer Space Treaty was adopted in 1967.
1: Right. And I want to just touch a little bit on the Outer Space Treaty because I don't think we've brought it up yet. Can you give us just a quick idea of what the Outer Space Treaty is, its main functions, or, I mean, its effectiveness in controlling what states are doing?
0: Yeah, the Outer Space Treaty is a a remarkable incident, And, and one has to understand a little bit of the history about it. The Soviet Union launched the first satellite in 1957, Sputnik. The next year, the United Nations created the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space and tasked it with developing multilateral instruments on space. And by 1963, they'd come forward with a very detailed draft, United Nations Declaration Resolution, which was adopted at the the General Assembly, and essentially became a fairly precise soft law instrument with regards to things like the responsibility of governments for their national actors, or the obligation to rescue astronauts in distress. And four years later, this soft law instrument was made into a hard law instrument in the form of the, the Outer Space Treaty.
1: Meanwhile, the foreign minister presided at the signing of the treaty banning nuclear weapons from outer space. Without such a treaty, life on Earth would be under continual threat. Between West and East, this is the best cooperation for a long
0: time. There were other things going on also. In in 1963, the United States tested a a nuclear weapon in space. Uh, The test was called Starfish Prime and discovered immediately that if you explode a nuclear device in space, you, you destroy a lot of satellites. In fact, they destroyed six satellites with that single test. And the Soviet Union and the United States were just pioneering the use of satellites for reconnaissance purposes and for verifying arms control treaties and such things. Satellites are really, really useful in reducing or eliminating the so-called security dilemma, which arises when you don't know what your opponent is doing. Satellites enable you to know what your opponent is doing. So they're very important for international security. And realizing this, the Soviet Union uh, sat down with the United States the United Kingdom and France almost immediately and negotiated the Limited Test Ban Treaty, which bans the testing of nuclear weapons in space. That also happened in the early 1960s. So, so the the framework was set. Then uh, there were a few multilateral treaties adopted after that, but the the system actually works really well, and it's promoted a, a great deal of international cooperation in space. The most obvious manifestation of this is the international space station which any listener to this podcast can actually go out and see if you just go to the nasa website and find spot the station and click in your location and it will tell you when to go outside and see the international space station pass over ahead with russian and western satellites on board working hand in glove together you forget about the ukraine crisis cooperation continues in space. And the U.S. have agreed to extend operation of the International Space Station until 2024. Anya Ardyeva has this report from Moscow. While bilateral cooperation between Russia and the United States has been mostly halted over Moscow's involvement in Ukraine, there is one area where the two nations simply cannot afford to impose further restrictions. That is in space aboard the International and Space Station. And yes, there are new challenges. Space debris is the most obvious one. There's also a... An issue of commercial space mining, which is attracting a lot of attention at the moment, although no one has actually done it yet. So I'm actually quite optimistic. There are big challenges, but there's also this incredible sense of, of common vulnerability in space. It's it's what I call a cold, dark, dangerous region. Cold, dark, dangerous regions bring actors together because it's it's just too expensive. It's just too dangerous to operate in these places on your own.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: right. Right. But I also just wanted to clarify, so the Outer Space Treaty, something really important, if I'm not mistaken, is that it doesn't allow countries to make territorial claims in space. Am I right about that? I mean, you had asked earlier who owns outer space. Is that purely, you know, just a hypothetical question or can countries actually claim territories? Um,
0: Countries can't claim territory in space. And this was a Cold War decision to essentially avoid uh, race for territory between the Soviet Union and the United States. So when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the surface of the moon and, and planted a U.S. flag, they didn't claim the moon as U.S. territory because two years earlier the United States had concluded the Outer Space Treaty that said that there's no national appropriation allowed of the moon or celestial bodies. The issue now concerning space mining is whether you can acquire ownership over minerals that you've extracted from the moon or from an asteroid. So you're not claiming the moon, you're not claiming the asteroid, you're claiming the minerals that you've extracted. and And there is a diplomatic struggle taking place over this right now, not over the question of whether you can do it, but who regulates it. Can it be done simply under the regulation of a national government Or do we need to create an international governance regime like we have with regards to the deep seabed in the United Nations International Seabed Authority? So the struggle is not over whether you can do it. The struggle is over who regulates it. But let me tell you something interesting coming back to SpaceX and Elon Musk and also to to Starlink, this Internet uh, service uh, from space. In the user's agreement for the beta version of Starlink, you'll find a paragraph whereby the, the user agrees that Mars is a free planet. And and I think it's just one of Elon Musk's Easter eggs, right? That This is just him having fun because he knows about the Outer Space Treaty. He knows about the prohibition on national appropriation. But of course, he also intends for his company to, to create the first settlement on Mars. And I think he's having a poke at national regulators saying that, you know, if I get there you can't reach me and and we're going to create this sovereign colony settlement of our own. We're faced with a choice. Which future do you want? Do you want the future where we become a space-faring civilization and are in many worlds and are out there among the stars, or one where we are forever confined to Earth? And I say it is the first. And although I think it's just Elon Musk having fun, it does raise the longer-term question of what happens centuries from now When there is a self-sustaining, self-sufficient human settlement on Mars or some other celestial body, and they become frustrated with being governed from this distant planet, a sovereign state on Earth, whether it's the United States or China or Liberia, what happens if they decide to go it alone? Do they have a right of self-determination, right? If they were in the global South and they were still being governed from a Northern country, absolutely, they'd have a right of of self-determination. Well... Do they still have that right if they're located on Mars? And I think the logical answer has to be yes. But it's not, of course, just self-determination vis-a-vis the national government back on Earth. It's also the question of the self-determination of the people vis-a-vis the company that owns the settlement, i.e. SpaceX. And so I don't think that Mr. Musk has worked through this entirely because... If it's a free planet, then the people also have the right to be free from him.
1: (laughs) Right. So he can't just be a space dictator.
0: (laughs) Not if he's following the chain of logic. Mm
2: -hmm. So on this topic of settlements on Mars and this lifelong aspiration of Elon Musk and what he wants to do with SpaceX before he dies, I guess I'm just kind of curious as to what you think what do you think is the likelihood that musk actually reaches that goal
0: uh i don't ever bet against elon musk right um i mean in 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 100 years he, he he will be the along with donald trump the historically significant figure of the early 21st century right i mean we know this already largely because of tesla because he's He's not only uh, built this electric car company, but he's forced all of the existing large automobile companies to move to electric, also, and that's huge. And and with regards to SpaceX, you know, I, I remember my my son Cameron ha- having a uh, an exchange online with the chief engineer from uh, United uh, Launch Alliance, the consort- consortium of of, of Lockheed Martin and Boeing, that. That, that operates uh, the Atlas V rockets and the Delta IV rockets. And, and Cameron asked this, this chief engineer uh, about uh, you know, what he thought of, of SpaceX's effort to, uh, to land their, their first stage boosters. This, this conversation took place in the summer of 2015. And the chief engineer of United Launch Alliance said, no, this is too difficult. No one's going to be able to do this. And within months, SpaceX and Elon Musk had done just that. So I don't bet against Elon Musk. The vision and the energy uh, and the ability to actually deliver, not on time, but not that far off of his time goals, is truly remarkable. And so with regards to Mars, I think that the SpaceX will get to Mars. They're going to have a harder time settling Mars. And that's because they're really good at engineering and they're less good or less interested in other things. So the biggest challenge in getting to Mars is not building the rocket. It's figuring out how to protect the people on board from radiation, all right? The the radiation issue is huge, and it, it's an issue that applies during the voyage and and also once you get there, and also the incredibly hostile environment. You have to find water, right? You have to figure out how to convert that water to energy. You uh, you have to deal with all the the psychological pressures of a twenty minute. Communication delay with Earth, I mean the list goes on and on the health the psychological challenges alone are staggering and, and so I expect that 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 we will see um you know initially a, a failed mission, maybe a number of them, for reasons that don 't necessarily have to do with the engineering, but they 'll probably persevere if uh, if listeners are interested uh, uh, the outer Space Institute did an interview uh last summer. With uh, Margarita Maranova, who's a, a Bulgarian Canadian uh, space scientist and engineer, who until last summer was the uh, the lead engineer for uh, the the Starship program for the the Mars rocket program at at SpaceX, and we got to interview her shortly after she left SpaceX, and and my my colleague Aaron Boley, asked her all the tough questions, and uh, it was remarkable because she she actually had answers to to the tough questions. Yeah, radiation is a problem. But, um, you know, we, we're we going to find water. We're going to put water uh, around the astronauts. Uh, we're going to build structures that will protect them uh, from radiation. Um, you know, we're, we're going to figure this out. Um, and, and it's going to be tough. And she was very frank. But we're going to pick people who are really tough, right? And so on balance, I think it will happen. I think we will become an interplanetary species, hopefully, before we destroy ourselves here on Earth. But it's not going to be a walk in the park, right? Uh, people are going to die. And hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars will be spent. And that's why Musk is perhaps the necessary actor in all this, because you can only do this if you're prepared to spend trillions of dollars, and you actually have trillions of dollars. And if you look at the increase in his wealth over the course of just the last year, you know he's on track to have that kind of capability. And ironically, he's going to get it by addressing climate change through electric cars.
1: Mm-hmm. To me, it sounds a little bit crazy to think about settlements on Mars right now, but it seems like it isn't It isn't just a pipe dream, potentially. Um, there is some possibility behind it. I was actually wondering, though, I mean, if we do get to that stage, and if we are sending increasing amounts of people to space, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about space tourism, even, um, with companies like SpaceX offering seats in the future. Who's Jurisdiction, would they fall under. So let's say there's a bunch of people on a SpaceX ship, and you know one of them commits a crime. I mean, whose jurisdiction would that be under if they're in space?
0: Yeah, well, they'll be subject uh, first and foremost to the jurisdiction of the the state of registry of the spacecraft. Uh, if they're on the International Space Station, we have a special agreement there. So it is the country of nationality of the the accused that has primary jurisdiction but that's simply to deal with the fact that it's a multinational spacecraft and people can be moving freely between different modules so you need some sort of rule to sort it out and it's never been needed because people do work together in space so those issues of sort of criminal responsibility are i mean they're dealt with but hopefully will never be needed because of the extreme vulnerability that every individual has and people have to work together they have to be extremely careful in order to survive In terms of space tourism, look, I'm highly skeptical of space tourism. And the reason I'm highly skeptical of space tourism is that rocket launches actually are a pretty significant contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. If you start considering the greenhouse gas emissions per person that you're launching to space, right? In terms of the actual global total, at the moment, they're almost insignificant, the total emissions from rocket launches, although that will become an issue as we start seeing launches on a daily basis in the future. But if someone is going to space on a Falcon 9 rocket to the International Space Station or even on Richard Branson's suborbital tourist flights, right, the carbon footprint alone of that individual is astounding and grossly irresponsible. And so for a joyride in space so you can brag about it at cocktail parties, right? Give me a break. I mean, do something better (laughs) with your money. Virgin Galactic is on an interesting mission. George, explain to us exactly what you're trying to do and what this mission involves.
2: Well, Arjun, what we're really trying to do is to open up space for the rest of us. So what we want to democratize space and make it much more easy to access for both people, like you and I, as well as uh, things like small satellites. How much is a ticket to space and how, much, uh, how many people have signed up so far? So each ticket costs $250,000, um, and we have over 600 people signed up. I'm a
0: big proponent of using space to expand our knowledge of the universe. Space science is really important. I'm a big promoter of space to provide essential functions, like assisting the global south in food production, right? Space is absolutely essential there. Understanding climate change, you know, space is absolutely essential. Satellites for climate change monitoring, absolutely essential. For supporting fisheries, for supporting other aspects of the economy, like banking or global positioning, transportation. Space is is an incredibly useful thing, but we don't need to have people burning up uh, thousands of tons of kerosene in order to get joyrides as as part of all this and i don't buy it like this is canadian who's due to go up uh, with spacex in a couple years he says he's going to conduct experiments while he's on board well give me a break right if anyone should be conducting experiments on the international space station it should be someone who's devoted their career to space science like a real astronaut but that aside This is still pretty fringe. It is really dangerous. The moment that the first tourists die in space, I think the tourist industry will wither and we can focus on more important things. And if you were going to ask the question, would I go to space as a tourist? The answer is absolutely no. And not just because of the pollution, but also because I'm a bit of a coward and I understand just how incredibly dangerous space is. And let me give you a specific example. Canada's foreign minister, Mark Garneau, was Canada's first astronaut, okay, And he actually went to space three times, right? Now, NASA calculated that the failure rate for those missions, right? Their predicted failure rate for those missions Mm -hmm. was 1%, right? So it's like Mark Garneau Mm -hmm. put a gun to his head three times in a row and pulled the trigger playing Russian roulette, right? I mean, the odds weren't quite as bad as Russian roulette, but they were pretty bad, and he went up three times, right? Now, I happen to know Mark Garneau He's an incredibly courageous person. He's got the right stuff. I don't. So I'll let people like that go to space. I'll let the professionals who take on risk as part of their careers do that work. And sorry, Richard Branson, but I don't want that free ticket on one of your suborbital flights.
2: Yeah, I mean, space tourism definitely seems like a costly endeavor. And it's got me thinking, the other day I was listening to Musk give a speech at the Air Warfare Symposium in early 2020 just months after the U.S. created the world's first and only Space Force as the newest branch of their military. So diverting from this conversation of pushing new boundaries, can you give our audience a bit of an idea of what space would look like as a new domain of warfare and why maybe it is or isn't that plausible actually?
0: What would the Trump administration have made of space, I think, is part of the question because Space Force and some of the developments coming out of Space Force were very much driven by the political level of the Trump administration. So we don't know whether they will continue or whether the Biden administration will will change course. But certainly the Trump administration saw space as a war-fighting domain. Space. going to be a lot of things happening in space. Because space is the world's newest war-fighting domain. Amid grave threats to our national security... American superiority in space is absolutely vital, and I think partly for political reasons wanted to appear macho by by creating a space force, which at least initially was just a, a renaming of the U.S. Air Force Space Command. In fact, the head of Space Force still reports to the head of the U.S. Air Force; it's not really a separate command, but they have their own uniforms and they have their own flag. They call themselves guardians, and and I'm sure they're having lots of fun and feeling good about the whole thing. But most of what the U.S. military does in space is to support operations on the ground uh, with communications and with Earth imaging. And the U.S. military knows how incredibly important these satellite assets are to it. The U.S. military is, is intensely concerned about space debris, and it knows that you can't have kinetic warfare in space. You can't create debris. That's the worst thing that you could possibly do in terms of the military interests of the United States. So the idea of stereotypical sci-fi warfare, things being blown up in space, that's just not part of the plan as far as all the serious people in the US military. And Trump may have had that vision. I think he imagined sort of stormtroopers flying around in space, chasing down rebel craft and shooting them with lasers. I don't know what he had in mind, but it was clearly uninformed by reality. And so what we're seeing now is whether whether some of the more worrisome things about Space Force can be dialed back. And, and one of the issues that needs to be addressed is whether the activities of the U.S. military extend beyond Earth orbit. The U.S. military is very active in Earth orbit, again, with communications and Earth imaging and, and surveilling the whole domain. Should we allow militaries to put spacecraft beyond Earth orbit in, in what's called cislunar space to surveil that area? and go on to that slippery slope? Or should we keep that domain beyond Earth orbit restricted to national space agencies like NASA, uh, like Roscosmos, like the Chinese National Space Agency? And I'm obviously in favor of leaving it to the national space agencies, just because there's a slippery slope there that could go wrong. For instance, if a Trump-like figure were to reemerge in the White House in four or eight years. And like I said, the US military, the senior leadership, doesn't really like the idea of space force and certainly doesn't like the idea of of doing anything apart from supporting surface operations from space
1: right because of course i mean like you were saying it is a bit of a slippery slope i mean the u.s right now i think is the only one that has a space force but there's nothing stopping other countries from pushing those boundaries as well
0: yeah, and it's partly a question of what you call it, right? Calling it something in the Space Force was provocative, right? And of course, other spacefaring countries have militaries that are very engaged in space China, Russia, India, but they're also aware of the dangers of weaponization. And so the distinction I make is between militarized space and weaponized space. And we've managed to keep Earth orbit largely unweaponized not completely, but largely unweaponized. And that's a really good thing. The question now is whether we can keep the area beyond Earth orbit unmilitarized, right? And the longer we do that, the the less the risk of escalation. And again, I don't think that serious people want to militarize deep space, cislunar space, just because of the cost involved, right? Even militaries have limited budgets, right? And I think they're more focused at the moment in providing really good broadband for their drones and really, really good imaging for the purposes of surveillance. And sending spacecraft to the moon or beyond of a military nature really doesn't give much to them.
2: So you've talked a bit about the U.S.'s Space Force and just the name itself made its emergence a bit provocative. And this leads into our last question here. So Over the past few years, pundits and politicians have increasingly spoken of outer space as this new domain for a Cold War emerging, especially between the U.S. and China.
0: So one of the things to keep in mind is that when the Chinese talk about space, they're not just talking about space. They are very holistic in their view. So they talk about establishing space dominance. But to them, space dominance means... I mean, we
2: haven't really talked about it much, but anti-satellite weapon testing by China in 2007, and more recently with India testing their ASAT capabilities, has caused pundits to speculate about warfare in space. NASA has apparently had a China exclusion policy since 2011, which prohibits NASA from engaging in bilateral activities with China or Chinese-owned companies. And so there hasn't been any Chinese astronauts on the ISS. So... My question is Are we witnessing a new space race emerge, or is this just political rhetoric?
0: Hmm. You know, it's interesting. I spent the last couple of decades swatting down journalists who wanted to tell the world that there was an impending conflict in the Arctic, right? Yeah. The number of times I've had to talk to journalists and talk them down from articles that would predict a new. Cold War or a militarization of the Arctic, or Russia or China threatening Canadian territory in the Arctic, because all that stuff is wrong. The Arctic is a very large, very remote, dangerous place. The only two boundary disputes are between NATO countries. And China's interests in the Arctic are things it can satisfy in cooperation with Arctic states. It wants access for shipping, and it wants access to natural resources. And and guess what it can get Resources through trade and foreign investment. And in terms of shipping, it needs the cooperation of coastal states, end of problem. So I've spent a couple of decades telling people that look, the Arctic is not where the next war is going to start. In fact, it's the last place that the next war is going to start. And you can just relax and tell the really important stories about the Arctic, which centrally involve climate change and indigenous peoples so i get to space and start working on this 5 years ago and i find the exact same narrative impending conflict military build up these malignant aspirations of china and russia And I look at it and I say, okay, where is this? I don't see the impending conflict. I see incredible cooperation with regards to dealing with the issue of space debris. I see a very active multilateral body, the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. I see cooperation on the International Space Station. Yes, China is not allowed there, but guess what? China cooperates very closely with the European Space Agency. So this is not an East-West thing. This is some U.S. senators who were playing politics, domestic politics with regards to the China foil. And then in terms of China's aspirations, what's China doing on the moon? It's doing exactly what the United States did in the 1970s, in the 1960s, right? I mean, the Apollo program and the current Chinese lunar program are almost identical. And what drove the Apollo program? Well, part of it was national pride, not militarization, national pride. And part of it was science. And so until someone can actually demonstrate to me that China truly has malignant motives, I'm going to assume that their motives are the exact same that drove the United States with the Apollo program. And look, if China wants to cause problems for the United States, there are much easier, cheaper ways for it to do this, right? It can cause problems for the United States in the South China Sea. It can cause problems for the United States in Africa and Latin America through its trade and debt programs with developing countries. Space, at the moment, it looks like a pretty quiet place from a security perspective, And the fact that China is there doesn't mean it has malignant intentions. And I've written about this in my own academic publishing, that you can have tension, even conflict, in some domains of international relations and have cooperation in other domains. The United States engages with China across a wide range of different issues. Some of them involve a lot of tension. Some of them don't. Same thing with Canada, right? We have a major dispute with China right now. Over two Canadian nationals in detention in China and a Chinese national in detention in Vancouver. Right, Major, major dispute. But you see all those ships in Vancouver Harbour? Well, guess where they're going. We're still trading intensely with China. right? We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can have a dispute in one domain and cooperate seamlessly in another. And that's what I see happening here. I think space is fine. We need to keep it fine. That's going to require a lot of work, a lot of diplomacy. It's part of the reason I am really happy that Mark Garneau is now foreign minister because he understands space and he understands that it needs to remain a place of international cooperation. And he's lived that cooperation, right? He's lived that cooperation in partnership with Russian astronauts. Mm
1: -hmm. So maybe space is one place where we can sort of leave earthly rivalries behind and just focus on um, a lot of opportunities for international cooperation then.
0: Yeah, and there are a wide range of different issue areas where we already cooperate. Space is one, but I, mm-hmm. I mentioned the Arctic, but you could think about all kinds of other areas mm-hmm. where we do cooperate most <laughs> of the time. know, international relations, it's a little bit like an iceberg, right? You only see the top 5% mm-hmm. or so, right? And the top 5% of international relations is war right and sanctions and leaders giving angry Mm -hmm. speeches right that's the top five percent we don't normally see the rest of the iceberg which is quiet and cooperative and is not noticed because it works right and that doesn't mean the top five percent is unimportant the top five percent is really important right but the rest of it is important too
1: awesome Well, that's all the time that I think we have today. But thank you so much, Professor Byers, for joining us. Um, It was a super insightful conversation. Something, I mean, I learned a lot of new things. I don't know about Miguel. (laughs) But -hmm. yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Well, uh, thank you for the opportunity. uh, And also to to listeners, uh, the Outer Space Institute website has, has information on a lot of the things that I've spoken about including that amazing interview with Dr. Margarita Maranova, uh, the former uh, lead engineer uh, for Starship, who can tell you all about Elon Musk's plans for Mars and, and how they're going to get around all of the major problems.